Um, so we are, I started teaching this chapter about two months ago. Um, I don't actually know how many verses we got into it. We were somewhere in the beginning, but it's been long enough. You guys probably aren't going to hold me accountable for reteaching a verse. I'm just going to start from the first verse and then, because uh, it's it's the greeting. This is Peter. First Peter 1, chapter 1. Verse 1. Yeah. Maybe I said too many ones there. I did. Anyway. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontius, Galatia, Cap Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace be multiplied. This is where we'll begin the study. But blessed, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Uh, there's so much there. Um, I love how Peter and blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. doesn't just simply mention um, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, but he starts with the blessing. Yes, bless God. Oh, all you people, bless God, right? Um, raise a shout to him. He, he's holy. He's good. You just think of the Psalms, how the psalmists are just over and over again, tell us to bless God, uh, speak of, his, of his, uh, his character and the reasons why he's, worthy of praise and, and and how humbling is it to think that we can bless God that just struck me um, all I have here in my notes is simply an underline under blessed blessed be the God he is blessed he blesses us we can bless him in return this is it's insane to think that it, it's insane to think that um, it says in Philippians 210 that we are God's workmanship in Christ Jesus, created for good works. Uh, that he's foreordained beforehand that we might walk in them, right? It's, it could also properly be translated, we are his masterpiece. Yet we're told that our works will be tested by fire, and those things that are done in the flesh will be burnt up as wood, hay, and stubble, but those things that are done for Christ that remain will be tested and purified like precious stones, right? Like gold and precious stones, things like that. And these, and we know that from the scripture, these things are done by the power of the spirit. This is the blessing of God in our life to walk separate from the dominion that sin would have over us when we merely walked according to the flesh. After the deceitful lusts of our flesh, the things that pulled us and they never delivered what they promised, right? No matter how many times we followed them. Anyway, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It says, "Who has of our Jesus, of the Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy, abundant mercy." You read in uh, another one of Paul's epistles. I say another one. We're in First Peter, but in in one of Paul's epistles, he's writing to Titus. It says, "When the kindness of the love of God our Savior toward man appeared." Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. Right? We're told, I think it's in Galatians, that at the appointed time, God sent forth his son. Right? We have the timeline. Uh, we have that beautiful Daniel 
9 prophecy about the coming of the Messiah. And we have the, the appointed time when Christ was supposed to come. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, if only you knew this, this day, your hour, right? Um, how I long to gather you together. Christ stands or he weeps. And all of this to say, this appointed time, God came, when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared. And he says, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of re regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. He initiated all of this. The Father draws, the Son saves, the Spirit seals. God did this work, right? He initiated that. We have, we have no room to boast in this. And God, remember Paul also says, and this, this very thing I am confident of, he who began a good work and you will be faithful to complete it until the day of the Lord Jesus Christ, he is going to be faithful to complete it. Again, blessed be the God. And I mean, oh my goodness, just let that pour out of you. Isn't, isn't it? Uh, I think it's Psalm 23 where it says my cup runs over my cup. Oh, what a, oh my goodness. I got to turn there now. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. What all, what all, he says something else there. Um, verse six, if I find it. Amen. Oh, oh my goodness. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Oh, the Lord, the sovereign Lord of the universe. He takes care of us, doesn't he? He says, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Remember, David says that one thing I ask and this thing I seek. I think it's Psalm 27. I don't have any of these things in my notes. One thing I've desired of the Lord that I will seek, that I will dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. The king of, of Israel. This is, this is what I long for. Not chariots covered in gold drawn by valiant horses. This, I want to dwell in God's temple. I want to be in his presence. I want to inquire of him. And this is that blessed God and Father who, according to his abundant mercy, he's begotten us. And this is that the idea of being born again. Remember the encounter with Nicodemus and Jesus. He, he says, surely, uh, surely you're sent from God. Jesus doesn't say that. Nicodemus says, surely you're sent from God because no man can do these miracles unless God is with him. And Jesus just says, look, listen, unless a man's born again, he, he won't even see the kingdom of God, right? It won't, it won't happen. And then he's, he's confused. How, how's a man going to be born again? Can he enter into his mother's womb again a second time and be born? And uh, Jesus has to tell him, no, like um, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. And this was something that Nicodemus didn't understand. This being born again, this is by the power of God. It's, it's not being religious it's not um going to church right it's you can consider that being religious it's not it's not saying a prayer it's not anything you do uh it is is in god's drawing uh, your response and humility we we have in john chapter 1 verse 13 starting 12 starting 11 
Speaking of Christ, he came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believed in his name, who were born, born again, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. This is, this is, a, this is something that God accomplishes, right? And, and it says, um, it's a living hope through the resurrection of Christ. It says later on that he keeps us through faith. This is one of those things that our response toward God in faith, it just, that's what causes us to be born again. In 1 John chapter 5, this new birth, it says of those who are believers, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone who loves him, who begot, also loves him who is begotten of him. And that's funny, funny language, right? But whether or not someone exhibits, guys, and, and really, this you got to cut through this because this is this is kind of a hard truth to deal with. But whether or not someone exhibits an admirable life um, isn't the reason why that person should be the object of our love and affection. Uh, they are the object of our love and affection. Another Christian is because of paternity. It's because we have the same father. It's uh, it's it's because everyone who loves him, God, who begot. Begot us again, also loves him who is begotten of him, also loves the brother, the sister, the Christian who's born of God. And that's what we're called to. This love doesn't spring from something admirable in the person's life. This this love comes from um, who their father is and that we're of the same family. And this is all by mercy. Uh, back to being begotten again. It's to a living hope. Uh, we we're in John, excuse me, we're in Romans 8 last night just talking about the futility of this creation that as it's fallen uh, due to the sin of man, it says in Romans 8:22, we know the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. 23 continues and not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. This is our living hope, right? Uh, Galatians 4, 6 says, And because you are sons, right, we have the spirit of adoption. God has sent forth his spirit, the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. This is a real thing. You can know his spirit. I think it also says that in Romans, yeah, it does. I'm going to turn back there. 8, 16 the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit. We are children of God. That might not be wit that might not be evidence to someone in the world, right? That oh, so you just have a feeling, right? But you can say no. You can you can know for sure the Spirit is witnessing to your spirit. You're a child of God. This this can be evidence for you. This can give you confidence. And this is this this living hope that we have in Christ, and it's living now, right? We're told. We're not told to just simply wait until we die to start experiencing the promises of God. We can experience these things now. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17, this living hope to realize it now, Paul says, I, This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their minds having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart. It says, who being past feeling have given themselves over to lewdness to work in all uncleanliness with greediness. 
but you have not so learned in Christ. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning the former conduct, the old man which grows corrupt according to deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, that you put on the new man which is created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. This is so important, guys. It's it, This is a, I mean, not only, oh, this is a do and a don't, but this is also a warning. Like this is reminding us that, the sin is just, it's deceitful, right? It, it promises, I'm looking up there only because, um, oh, Amanda's not back there. It's, it's Daniel. Nothing against Daniel. Amanda's like, Shh, I get that out there. So um, I just wasn't sure if it was up there or not. It's not a big deal. No pressure. Anyway, <laughs> um, Paul is reminding us sin is a deceitful lust. Not only is it lust, but it's deceiving. It promises something, and I've already said this, promises something it can never deliver, right? And, and you hear about the law of, uh, what's it called? Return. Uh, diminished return, right? You give in to a sin. I mean, you cultivate a relationship with God. And what did we read in Psalm 23? That he, he anoints our head with oil and our cup runs over. The more you, you cultivate that relationship, the more it gives back. The more you pursue sin, the less it gives back. Like the only thing that's rewarding about sin is the novelty of it because it releases some dopamine. It's exciting. Guys, I heard this uh, illustration. I heard this illustration. I wish I could remember what it was, um, what book it was from. But it was, it was recounted by a guy. He was speaking. He said it was a, a friend of C.S. Lewis. I'm going to try and sum it up. But basically there were two dogs. They had a great master. And maybe some of you are going to know what I'm talking about. And, um, and he let them out every day. He gave them freedom. He gave them everything they needed. They had a great life. Like they had this essentially idyllic existence. So they got to prance around, run in the fields. The only rule they had was every time the master called for dinner, they had to come immediately. And, uh, I feel like one of them's name was snowball, but I could be wrong. But, um, We'll say, we'll say Buddy, okay, guys? Buddy and Snowball. That's probably not their names, but Buddy seems like a good name for a dog, right? So Buddy and Snowball are out in the field, and this one day, the master comes and calls, dinner, 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 and they come running back. And, and uh, a rabbit runs right in front of Buddy's trail, and he, and he thinks, I really want to chase that rabbit. But he resists the temptation, and he goes home, but he's still thinking about it. And then the next day, they're out in the field. They're having, they have the perfect life. They have a great master. There's just this one rule, right? And when he calls dinner, 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 the rabbit runs across the trail. And this time, he's like, I'm chasing it. And he does. And it was, it was exciting because he broke the rules. And while it disappointed the master, um, the, uh, it, the dog came home with its tail tucked between its legs. But it was still kind of, you know, that was fun. But then... After the first time, it only got easier, but it got less rewarding. What ended up happening was the master lost the trust, and, and so Buddy had to wear a leash. And one time, the master brought him out into the woods and was going to bring him on a walk. And Buddy waited and waited and just until there was a crack in the door. He slammed into that door, and he bolted. I'm going to get free. I'm going to go. I'm going to go, 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 go. And he starts yelling, Buddy, 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 Buddy. Anyway. Till he gets out of distance, and then uh, 
but he never came back. Snowball, the master gathers Snowball, gets him in the car, and um, Buddy lives out in the woods. Oh, I suppose I should have given Buddy a female name because I remember Buddy had puppies now. Bud S. We'll call her. We'll call. We'll call Buddy Lily. How about that? You guys will understand. Lily. Lily ends up uh, living in the woods. Um, gets a matted coat. Has some puppies. Lily tells the pups often about the goodness of the master. The pups never meet the master, but they hear stories about the goodness of the master all the time. And then those pups grow up and they have puppies, and you know they. They know about the master, but it's only stories. They've never experienced the master. And they tell their pups about the master, the stories that they've heard. But when those pups grow up and have pups, they just completely forget. They never, they never tell the stories about the master. The, the point of the story is the master's still good, right? It doesn't matter if we forget. It doesn't matter how much we pursue our lusts. And those lusts have the diminished returns. And we come to this place of bankruptcy and depression. The master is still good, even though we don't pursue the master. Because the master gives us all freedom. Jesus gives us freedom. When the people came to Jesus and, and said, listen, I, I, I want to follow you, but I just got to do the thing. And he's, he let them go do the thing. Or if he said, this is the cost, this is what you're going to have to do. You know, he, he, he looks at the... Uh, the rich young ruler says that he watched him go and he loved him. That's profound. The master gives us freedom. The master is still good. It doesn't matter how far we wander. That's just a story. But the truth about lust here is that it's deceitful and it never delivers. It doesn't matter how far away we get from the master. We can come back and he's, he's still, he's always good. He will deliver. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope. This is living. And the reason we can be so confident in this thing is because it says uh, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is one of my favorite topics, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You got to know how to talk about the resurrection of Jesus Christ if you're going to do campus ministry, right? Because they want to talk about the thousand supposed contradictions in the Bible, right? And I probably mentioned it before. One, one girl said, um, no one at any time has ever seen God. Right? She read that verse from the prologue of John 1. Of course, it then says, but Jesus, the only begotten God who is in the Father's bosom, he has declared him. She didn't read that verse. But, um, and then she goes, but what about here in Genesis? I think it's Genesis 32, where it says Jacob wrestles with an angel. And then he says, I've seen God face to face. So I... I present, well, what you have to understand is that in the prologue of John, John is presenting Jesus as fully God. He, he is, he's God. He was with God, and he is face-to-face -face with God, and he created all things, and without him nothing was created that was created. But then he also talks about the Father as God, and, and that person of the Godhead no one has at any time seen. But Jesus, Jesus we have seen. And she's all like, well, you can't just make up your own interpretation of Scripture to explain away contradictions. I'm like, well, I'm not. It's in the prologue of John. So she didn't. So anyway, all, all I'm saying is um, what I've realized is, hey, okay, you don't like trying to work through supposed contradictions. 
What do you do with Jesus when he hangs his authority on the fact that he's going to accomplish his own resurrection? What do you think about that? And, I, and they say, well, I don't believe you resurrected from the dead. And, and I'll just ask, why? Why do you? Because it's, it's just in a book. It's made up. And then, and then here's the thing. And you guys have heard me do it before, right? And I always look at my finger. I always imagine the words written on my finger. That way I don't forget it. But there's, there's this, this, this argument. I think it's, um, forget about it. I can't remember the man's name right now. But it's called the minimal facts argument. The minimal facts argument being that it is, you, it's, it's almost completely unanimously right. I mean, we're talking about 90% or more of scholars recognize the fact that Jesus was crucified under Pontius Pilate. And the only ones, I'm not kidding, the only, the only scholars, right, who have just completely tarnished their credibility are the, the Muslims because they insist Jesus wasn't actually crucified, right? I'm a historian. There's actually one guy. He's, uh, I always remember his name because his name is Aslan, which is the same name as the lion from Narnia. But he's a, he's a Muslim scholar. He said it's, it's undeniable. Jesus was, in fact, crucified. But that's the first of the minimal facts argument. He was crucified under Pontius Pilate. And it's, it's recognized by the vast majority of scholars there was an empty tomb. And you guys know this. There was an empty tomb so much so that the Jews had to conspire with the Romans to come up with an excuse as to why the tomb was empty. It testifies just the tomb was empty. For whatever reason, right, we know Jesus was crucified, but his tomb was empty. We also know the women found the tomb. And it's like back then, why would you use women? Because women, of course, you know, this is not the way Christ views you. But the, the Roman world viewed women as second class citizens. Their testimony wasn't um, even to be received in a court of law. But looking back, what's beautiful about it, historians look at that and say, that's a magnificent piece of evidence because we know that they, you didn't, wouldn't just make something up like that. Like none of the apostles, none of the disciples believed. We give, we give Thomas the name Doubting Thomas because he wouldn't believe until he saw Jesus' resurrected body. But all of the other disciples did the same thing. None of them believed the women's report. Until Jesus showed up in the in the middle of them, right? And then they went to Thomas, and he's like, "Well, I'm not going to believe unless I get to experience this. It's kind of unfair." But all that to say, the women proclaim the empty tomb. We have the uh, disciples willing to suffer, even to the point of martyrdom for their for their uh, for their testimony that they saw Jesus resurrected from the dead. We have the enemies of, of Jesus Christ being converted. We have Saul of Tarsus. We have the brothers of Jesus, the ones who claimed him to be insane, right? So we have these, we have the, the minimal, the reason I'm bringing this up is because this, this is the thing, like what if it was the other way around? Like, I mean, is this a hill to die on guys? Like Jesus Christ resurrected from the dead. And the answer is yes, it is a hill to die on. He physically resurrected from the dead. It says in first Corinthians 15, 17, if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. And you're still in your sins. Christianity is without purpose, without a resurrection. If Jesus Christ is not resurrected from the dead, you're going to stand before God in your sin. That's terrifying. You, we are most, we are to be pitied more than every man if Jesus Christ is in fact not resurrected from the dead. But if Christ is alive, there's hope. And here's another thing. This isn't completely necessary. I, You guys have heard me say that I do in fact, believe um, the word is 
is the Bible is God's infallible word to man, to humanity. I don't find it necessary to prove to college kids that the Bible is infallible, just merely trustworthy, right? Greg Kokel actually has a thing. Um, you guys see me using my hands, but I've done this a few times. So I actually remember, anyway, he, he does a thing with his hands too. And it's uh, talking about why you can trust the Bible, right? Pinky for prophecy, right? And he just talks about all of these things and we could go through it, but we don't have that much time. Um, I was given an extra 15 minutes though, but uh, <laughs> I'll try not to use all of it. Anyway, um, pinky for prophecy, right? That's one of the things in the scripture that unless this God stands outside of time and tells the beginning from the end before it comes to pass. I mean, how in the world are you going to have such exact prophecy like we have in the scripture? We have such a vivid, I think it's Ezekiel 28 talks about the exact way that Tyre is going to be destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar and, and, and then eventually Alexander the Great, like 130 years later. It's, it's insane. Long detail. Seriously, it's so cool, Ezekiel 28. Um, the siege of the city, then moving off, uh, off to, to the island, Tyre. Alexander dragging the city down, throwing its rubble, making a land bridge until he can get out to the island and 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 desecrating uh, the remaining city out there. I mean, this was prophesied in Ezekiel hundreds of years before it happened, right? That's not even a messianic prophecy. The messianic prophecy is so incredibly detailed. Um, so just so prophecy, he uses. Yeah, I misplaced my my ring, but this is my ring finger. <laughs> I went swimming with the kids. Uh, anyway, you guys, I know. I'm just, I feel awkward. The ring's supposed to be there. And it's helpful because um, unity, right? 1,500 years, 40 different authors, 66 different books, unified, right? H having the same message, the same meta narrative sewn all the way through it. There's this amazing graphic that uh, Jordan Peterson who hopefully will become a Christian. I think he's kicking against the goads. I've seen him break down and weep over Jesus, but he's just unfortunately unrepentant at this point. He made this amazing graphic of the times um, that the Bible is cross-referenced. I mean, how, how the narrative so weaves its way. It, so I'm doing this because he makes like a big rainbow, he, starting with Genesis over here all the way to Revelation. There's over 66 thousand different cross references in the bible references from i mean we're talking three continents right multiple different languages 40 men most of whom never met each other and yet their narrative is is, is telling the same story as these other guys that live in completely different centuries i mean it's insane so prophecy unity um big finger middle finger big it answers big questions right where did we come from it gives it gives it's more than like this evolutionary narrative of, well, we're all just happenstance, pawn scum, eventually time plus chance, you know, acting on matter. No, it actually, it actually answers the questions. Where did you come from? What are you doing here? Where are you going? Index finger, uh, same thing. It's the index of the world. It, it actually, it lays out, uh, it, it gives sound history. It, it records um, miraculous. It gives it gives explanation to it miraculous events. The thumbs up. It changes people's lives for the better, right? And then he find he makes a fist. It's a fighter, 
right? It, it has, it has been preserved. It has lasted. And guys, so the French, so there's been some heat over it. There's a, there's a doctor, um, a professor, Dr. Daniel Merritt. He confirmed in a conversation with Dr. Frank Turek, who runs Cross-Examine, he's a, he's a Christian apologist, the, uh, the narrative, the, uh, the event, the, the French philosopher Voltaire, who lived in the, the 17th and 18th centuries, made the statement that within 100 years of his lifetime, Christianity would, be, would just disappear from, from the earth and, and that essentially it would become a relic. You know, the Bible would become a relic in, in a dusty old museum. And, um, well, ironically, after Voltaire died, his home... Uh, became his home and his his own personal, what do you call it, his facilities, the printing press specifically, it became used by the Geneva Bible and Tract Society to house Bible tracts, to house Bibles. His printing press was used to print Bibles. The irony of a man making such sacrilegious statements about the God of the universe and then God saying, oh, yeah, you think so? Well, thanks for your stuff. Okay, I'm going to bless the world with it, right? God, God works all things together for the good of those who love him, right? Who are called according to his purpose. So the living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead says to an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, and it does not fade away. Incorruptible and undefiled. There's an eternal reward that cannot be corrupted. Remember Jesus says in Matthew 6, 19, he says, don't get for yourselves money bags on earth where a moth can destroy and thieves can break in and steal. But get for yourself money bags in heaven where moth can't destroy, where rust you know, can't corrode, thieves can't break in and steal. There is an eternal reward. It's incorruptible. It's, uh, it's, it's an inheritance that's incorruptible. It's undefiled. right? It doesn't pass away. There is no end. It's funny because um, I, I just think of my brother Tom. Because he's, he's, uh, he just had his hip replaced, and I heard him talking to a doctor or something the other day about how he's got to get his shoulder replaced. He's got to get his shoulder replaced. Well, these things, these these things were promised by God. There's no need for upgrades. We can praise the Lord for that, right? We're we're not going to need to get new stuff. We're not going to need to get, you know, um, new hips, new shoulders, and you know, I, I realize people go through that, and it. Technology is incredibly helpful, but that's just for this time. You're going to get a resurrected body, and we can praise God for that. Also, undefiled. It isn't tarnished by our lust. It's not tarnished by our wickedness. Second Peter 3.13, in talking about uh, this new creation, Peter says, Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Our sin, our wickedness. There's going to be no corruption in this new earth. For from uh, so it's like, you know, you know all those people who like really get on your nerves and that they really bug you and you just kind of wish they wouldn't come around. Well, here's the thing: you're not going to have to worry about that anymore because you're not going to be a sinner. You're not going to get irked by people's little quirks. You're going to get along with them just great. And I'm smiling because yes, they're going to be righteous too. But uh, if we're all honest, we're our own biggest problem. And that's, I mean, that's as true as a day is long. We know that. If, if we're honest with ourselves, the, the thing that we need deliverance from the most is ourselves. And God's going to do that. 
is going to be a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. We're there. We go. You know, we're going to be together in unity and holiness, and um, righteousness will dwell in us. Yeah, it continues in verse four. This inheritance is incorruptible, undefiled. It doesn't fade away. I, uh, Jason Kane, who probably a bunch of you know, uh, he fellowships with us. When my wife and I first bought our house on State Street, she turned the then hair salon into a small spa. And Jason Kane came over and he helped me build a wall. And uh, he was telling me how he had to get he, – he had this truck at the time. He might still have it. I don't know. But it was 19 years old. And uh, he's telling me how he needed to get a new truck. And here I am. I'm feeling super awkward because he's working on this wall for free. And uh, I didn't know if he was hitting at something. But me and my brokenness, I kind of just let it slide. So, uh, But it's funny because he told me that as soon as he bought this truck, I think it was a Chevy, um, the truck that he owned at the time. He does have a new truck now. But the truck that he owned at the time, he said he said one of the first things he did is he took it down a, tur- a tight dirt road and just let it get all scratched up. And I'm not saying everyone has to do this, right? But he got the inevitable scratches taken care of early. You know, there are certain people who buy their trucks and then they park it like way out in the back corner of the Walmart parking lot and walk a quarter mile to get to the front door because they don't want it to get scratched. The, the, the fact of the matter is everything's fading away, Right. And again, I'm not saying you got to park your Bronco right next to someone who's reckless and is going to ding it up. But uh, <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just saying it's going to get dinged up. It's going to happen, right? Um, this is just an example of someone who, who recognizes the world. The world's passing away. It's not going to last forever. Stuff fades, and we ought to own it. And it's not in pessimism. It's in a glorious optimism. You're a Christian. You can own it because you're getting an upgrade, right? You're getting it. You don't have to worry about things passing away. The word of the Lord stands forever. And that's and Jesus Christ is our rock. The confession of, of, P, of Peter in, in Matthew 16, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, right? And, and he says, yes, amen. And on this, I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The kingdom of God is not passing away. It's eternal. These things are passing away. This, this inheritance that we will receive, it does not fade away. This is good news, right? This is good news for all of us. It says it's reserved for us, reserved in heaven for you. And again, guys, this is, this is because of what it states in verse 3. This is according to his abundant mercy by which he has begotten us again to this living hope. That we have this inheritance reserved for us. We, we know the work has been done to tell us die. It's completed. And now we trust. Right? What did that thief do on the cross? Confess Christ as Lord and ask him for forgiveness. That was it. Lord. Well, what he, he acknowledged his sin. We're hanging here. We deserve this. We've been rightfully condemned, but this man's done nothing. Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He confessed his sin. He confessed Christ, he confessed Christ as Lord, and he trusted Jesus was the one who could deliver him. And that's that's what we did. We, we, we recognize the work is done. He cried out to Telestai. It is finished. And then we trust. We just trust. What is the object of your faith? What is the object of your hope? 
what are it's certainly not you know i mean i i find it very humorous that jason kane drove that truck down through the woods because he didn't want it to be a little idle right sitting in his in his driveway that he had to buff up every six months and and now even beyond that he doesn't drive the thing anymore i don't know if he still owns it like i said but i know he's driving a different truck all that to say our faith can't be in our stuff here the question that i have for you right and this part of verse four that you have an inheritance reserved in heaven for you. It, it's incorruptible and defiled. It doesn't fade away. Do you find yourself questioning that? Whether or not the infinite creator of the universe has, has a place in heaven for you? You guys remember what Jesus said in John 14? Uh, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. And my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am... There you may be also. Do you, do you find yourself questioning that? You know what blows my mind is just before that, Peter says, Lord, where are you going? And this is, and I say just before that, you're like, nothing comes before that in chapter 14. I mean, but chapter 13 comes before that. And Peter says, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you shall follow me afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for your sake. He wants to follow him then. Jesus, you're, you're going to lay your life down for my sake. you know. Anyway, but he says, Jesus answered him, will you lay down your life for my sake? Most assuredly, I say to you, the rooster shall not crow till you have denied me three times. How surreal is that? Guys, hear this. Let not your heart be troubled. That's the very next line. That's the next thing Peter says. Can you even imagine the beginning of this chapter? It says that Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, rose up from supper, took off his outer garment, and he washed the disciples' feet. I was talking to some brothers about this not, not long ago. I just asked them, what would you do if you had all authority in the universe? Right? Jesus was going back to the Father. He knew that. He knew that was coming. He knew that all things were given into his hands. And yet he humbles himself and he takes the lowest role as a servant. He says in that same scene we read in Luke 22, he says the Gentiles exercise lordship over one another. They're called benefactors, but not so among you, right? If I, who am I'm greater than all, I've come to be as a servant among you. It, and then he says um, back into John 13, a servant's not greater than his master. And we ought to... We ought to replicate that same attitude, that same act of service. There's a lot that goes on, a ton that goes on at the Last Supper. But the point that I was making is there is a place reserved in heaven for you. Have you confessed your need? Have you cried out for, to God for mercy? Because he gives us mercy. He's rich in mercy. God started this whole thing. God drew you by his love. It, Paul tells us it is the love of Christ that compels me, right? And right as Peter is being told, you're going to betray me. Thousands of years of mockery. Oh, he petered out, right? Can you imagine? And then what happens? He restores him on the shore and he just says, feed my sheep. He can't even, he can't even look him in the face and tell him he loves him. But he says right on the heels of, you're going to betray me three times. 
before the rooster crows. It says, but don't let your heart be troubled. Don't let, I can't say it again. I can, but I might cry, so. Have you guys been there? He says, don't let your heart be troubled. Do you believe in God? Believe in Jesus Christ. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Yeah, you're going to betray me, but don't let your heart be troubled. God has a place in heaven reserved for you. A place with your name, right? Mm, okay, got to move on. <laughs> Guys, do we put these two things together? <laughs> do you realize how good Jesus truly is? So good. You can't even fathom it. You can't even fathom it. Um, I came here earlier. Oh, gosh, I can't do that. Can't talk about it. Anyway, verse 5 says, Who, it's speaking of us, right? Who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. You're kept. You're, you're kept by the power of God. He, he's going to go on in verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice. He's talking about all of these things that we have as beneficiaries because God has called us to himself by his great mercy, right? And it's because of the work of Jesus. It's not because of anything we've done. And now he's saying we're kept. All of these things are kept, right? And we are kept. We're kept by the power of God through faith. Just trust. Who is it you trust in? What are you going to trust in? What do you, what do you want to trust in? You, you watch. I mean, what was it, 1973? They built the two most impressive steel structures in the world embedded in 110,000 tons of concrete, and they fell to the ground in less than 60 seconds. You guys know what I'm talking about? The Twin Towers. I actually taught a, I taught a youth group Bible study, and I mentioned 9-11, and I got a bunch of deer in headlights. <laughs> that was surreal. Um, guys, God has God set, he has kept us. He set a guard over you, the God of the universe. Shouldn't you be thankful for that? He's, he's got your back. He's got your front too, but that's a, it's a saying, right? He's, God's the one who's got your back. It's like, you know, I have little kids. You go, I said to Olivia, oh my gosh, I go down in the basement all the time to grab things and the kids want to follow me. And I didn't even consider this. I said to Olivia, I said, hey, would, do you mind going down in the basement and grabbing one of those batteries so we could throw it in the Power Wheels truck? And she's like, in the basement? I'm like, yeah, in the basement. You know where it's at. Well, the basement kind of scares me. And I was like, oh, oh, gosh, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. I'll go get it. I it didn't even dawn on me. She's scared of the basement. I mean, it makes sense after she said it. But most of the time when I go in the basement, there's not a problem because I'm there. It's not because I'm awesome. It's just because I'm dad, right? And she trusts dad. Listen to James 4. James 4 says, therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you, right? Well, people like to quote the other half of that verse, resist the devil, he'll flee from you. You got to submit to God. Draw near to God. Like the child at the back of his father's leg, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Remember all the correction in this in this epistle about 
not being double-minded in speech and controlling your tongue and being a complete man, perfect, lacking nothing, right? He says, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Control your mouth, right? Mourn over your sin. He, he repeats just as, uh, first, as, as Peter does and, and later on in 1 Peter, that God exalts the humble. Come, come to God in humility. And he's your father, right? You can draw near to God. The command is to draw near to God. He's going to draw near to you. He, and it's you're being kept by his power, right? He set a guard around you. He's keeping you. Ephesians 6.12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. I think... I think it was a prayer. I sent it to some of the guys. Um, I think it was by Martin Luther, where he's just pouring out his heart saying, Lord, one angel could just, one demon, right? A fallen angel could just mess me up. And yet you restrain them. You take care of me. You protect me. Isn't, I mean, this is what that's saying. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but God has all these things, you know, as a matter of speech. He has them on a leash, right? They can only go so far. You think of the terrible things Job went through, but we do see that it was only at God's allowance that those things happen, right? Um, God's in control. First Peter five. Oh, I actually have it in here. Oh, it's not that verse though. It just the the idea. The devil wants to take us all out. Listen. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. Right? The devil, he's not just got it out for you. He's got it out for all of us. Pray for one another. Lift one another up. But remember, we have a God we can be confident in. He's keeping us. We're being kept by the power of God through faith for salvation. But may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. The, suffer the suffering is necessary to mention, because Peter's going to mention it in the next verse. We're going to suffer. John, I think it was this past Sunday, all those who seek to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Guys, we're going to go through it. And it's so much better to go through it together. I have guys I know. Listen, I know anxiety is a sin. You don't need to tell me that. But I'm a human and I'm prone to just naturally respond in anxiety. God has taught me to put one foot in front of the other and keep walking forward, right? But in that, one of those steps is calling my brothers, confessing my sin of anxiety, asking for prayer, and then walking forward knowing God has worked these things out, right? Don't worry about what you're going to wear, where you're going to go, where you're going to sleep, right? All these things that Gentiles worry about, right? But but God, not one sparrow falls from the air without God's notice. But don't, don't, aren't you worth so much more than a sparrow? He knows that the number of hairs on your head, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be taken care of. And I know that's paraphrased. All these things will be accounted unto you. The suffering. Guys, we're going to go through the suffering. Some of us like to blame our spouse for it. Some of us like to blame our employer for it. Some of us like to blame our kids for it. The truth of the matter is 
we suffer most of the time because of our own sin. I was telling my daughter this. Listen, babe, no one can ruin your day but you. The only thing that ruins your day is your sin. Listen, Jesus loves you so much. Jesus only ever had one bad day, and it was when he took our sin on himself on that cross. On that, Remember he says in John 5 that nothing... Um, I do only those things I see the Father doing. He had such perfect fellowship with God that he and he said, "My Father has been working all this time, and just so, just and likewise, I, I'm working also." I'd take the Jews off because in the culture they understood that God did His work of creation the first six days; He rested on the seventh, but He still was at work upholding, maintaining, preserving His creation. God and Jesus is saying, "I do that." That's what I do. Whoa. That's, I mean, you know, you, be, you better resurrect yourself from the dead, right? Because they said, by which authority do you do all these things? This is, I'm going back from John 5 to John 2. And he says, uh, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. He says, I'll raise it up. He doesn't say, destroy this temple, and then God, uh, he'll raise it up for me to show you that he He says, literally, I mean, don't get me wrong. God did raise him from the dead, but Jesus also said he raised himself from the dead. He says in, 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 in John chapter 2 that he's literally going to be the one to accomplish his own resurrection. Anyway, um, we are – goodness, what, what point was I making? I was talking about suffering. We're going to suffer. How does that relate? You know, Jesus suffered, and, and, and I guess along that same vein – um, oh, it's sin. That's what I was talking about. We are the reasons most of the time we suffer, and it is because uh, of our own sin. But even in the midst of our suffering, we can have great joy. And, and Peter is going to say that. In this, you greatly rejoice, right? He says, you greatly rejoice. You presently, presently, though now for a little while, if need be, you are grieved by various trials. So there is rejoicing while there is grieving. It's they're not they they're not incompatible, right? You can the thing the thing we got to recognize is that in our grieving, our rejoicing far exceeds the grief. the The joy, the rejoicing in Christ, is an eternal perspective, it's recognizing that God is working something good out of this. But also, um, I. Oh, Romans 8.18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. You know, sometimes you just put your head down and you get to work. Because while it looks like the world is falling apart around you, and it looks like maybe everyone else has got it out for you, we, we know, right? We know God doesn't. In this, God demonstrated his love for us that while we were still sinners, Jesus died for us. Jesus died for us. He took our place. God doesn't have it. He wants, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We are victorious. So in the suffering, um, you, you read in Hebrews chapter 1, if then we are surrounded by so great, Hebrews chapter 12, excuse me, verse 1, if then we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every sin that so easily ensnares us and let us run this race looking to the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him 
despised the cross, despised the shame, endured the cross, and sat down at the right hand um, of the glory of God. Right? That there is suffering, and we can still rejoice. We can still have that joy, knowing what's set before us, knowing that there's there's going to be trials to go through. You think of Jesus weeping in the garden. Did he not despise that cross? Great drops of blood he sweat. And yet he went through with it. He was obedient to God the Father's will. Right? He laid his own will down. And he did it despising the shame. And during the cross, sitting down for the joy that was set before him, sitting down at the right hand of God, of, of the glory of God. Listen to uh, 2 Corinthians 4, chapter 8. Excuse me, 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 8 through 10. Paul writes, We are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying out in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our body. Right? He says, yeah, we go through stuff but not to the point where we're overcome. It doesn't, it, it, you cling to Christ, it's not going to shipwreck you. you. Don't get me wrong. We don't want to, listen guys, if, if we got to choose everything we went through in life, then we'd probably breathe, breathe our last being far less wise than, than going through the things that God has ordained for us to go through. There are things that you just don't learn um, on sunny days with daisies and rainbows. You know, There are things that you learn Right, it says in uh, I have it here somewhere. The Proverbs seventeen three: the refining pot is for silver and the furnace for gold, but the Lord tests the heart. Right, just like the refining pot, the metal worker, he 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 draws the dross to the top of the metal and he scrapes it off to make the metal more pure. The Lord allows us to go through tribulation, through sufferings, to refine our character. You guys know these things, but the the promise is that. We can still greatly rejoice in the midst of that. How? How are we gonna, Well, the example is Jesus. The example is to look to Jesus, the author, the finisher of our faith, right? The one who set the example. We're, we're also, it says in Romans 8, 36 and 37, as it is written, for your sake, we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. It says, for your sake, for the sake of Christ, we're a model, right? We're an imperfect model to the people around us of what Jesus was the perfect model of for us. Joy in the midst of, of suffering. It's, it's a temporary pain for a permanent blessing. And again, we greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, we're grieved by various trials. Verse 7 says that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it may be tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. There is, there's, there's far greater substance to our joy than there is to our grief. That's what Paul says. The sufferings aren't even worthy to be compared to the, the glory that will be revealed. There's far greater substance to the joy than there is to the grief even though sometimes it's so hard. Guys, I, I've i dealt with knee pain. And, and, and talking with guys, um, 
we we've all acknowledged in this group that I'm referencing this this conversation I'm referencing in my mind now um, that there were amazing things that God taught us about His character and our and our fickleness through pain, right? And there were times where my knee pain was so tremendous when it first started. I thought I just can't even deal with this. I can't. I've had knee pain now for eight years. Um, sometimes it's worse than others, but there were times where I just refused to see any good, refused to be optimistic about anything because all I could think about was myself, was my pain. And there were things that, you know, there was humility that God worked in me. There was dependence. Um, I, I've never really had an issue with gaining too much weight. Uh, but there were times where I recognized even the little bit amount of weight that I was gaining. You guys would probably laugh if I told you like what I mean, but um, even that little bit amount of weight would increase the amount of knee pain. So it, it, it also taught me self-control, which is it's beneficial in all these different areas in life. These things, it proves the genuineness of your faith, and it says it's much more precious than gold that perishes, right? It may be tested by fire, found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus. It might not be the experience we choose for ourselves, but it's, it's something that God is working for our good. Uh, think of the lessons we never would have learned without the pain that preceded it. I gotta, there's, I gotta, I gotta speed up here. I know I've already been teaching an hour, but anyway. Verse eight says, "Whom having not seen you love." And remember, this is this is talking about the proven character of your faith, resulting in the praise, glory, and honor at the revelation, the revealing of Jesus Christ. And then he says, "Whom having not seen you love, though now you do not see him, yet believing, you, rejo you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory." receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. You guys know that this type of love is very is very unique to the biblical God, right? The, the Roman gods were um, fickle. They were finite. They were mischievous. They were basically superheroes. Um, they, they, weren't, they weren't transcendent. They were just cooler versions of humans that did what they want, right? Romans kind of did that also. Um, yeah, the Islamic God, you know that the Islamic God doesn't, Allah, right? They say it's, this is Judea, this is the Judean faith. This is actually like, this is the truth. This is the lion through Ishmael. And um, it's the uh, the restoration of the, the old and the New Testament. That's not exactly the way Muhammad puts it, but he, the Islamic God has no love for sinners, but, but the, the biblical God does. It says, whom having not seen you love? Right, and First John four says we love him because he first loved us. This is how we were brought into this relationship because he first loved us. Our confidence is in the fact that he demonstrated his love toward us. That while we were sinners, Christ died for us. You read in Exodus thirty four after the Israelites so quickly start mumbling against Moses and against God and bringing them out into this desert so that we die and that the food here is not that great. It was better back in Egypt. In Exodus thirty four. When the Lord is revealing himself to Moses, it says it the Lord passed in front of him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord. He is compassionate and a gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth. Remember how Rahab, remember how Rahab said that the whole land, Jericho, when they're coming into Jericho, they're fainted from fear because of the accounts of what Israel's God did to the Egyptians 40 years ago, 42 years ago, right? 
Um, this is it's just confirmation of the truthfulness of God's statement and raising up Pharaoh. Exodus 9.16, but indeed for this purpose I've raised you up that I may show my power in you and that my name may de be declared in all the earth. Consider, this, this saved Rahab's house. I saved Rahab and her entire house because God demonstrated his power through judging the Egyptian deities. Rahab heard of it and threw herself on, on God's mercy, assisting the spies. But then you, you consider the contrast of that, right? Because what we hear about God is the Lord is compassionate. He's gracious, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love. What about Jonah? Remember when God called Jonah to Nineveh? And he runs to Joppa and he jumps on a, on a, a boat to Tarshish. Tarshish. And um, he risks the lives of all the guys on the boat, fast asleep in the bottom of the boat. And they're all praying to their gods and crying out. And they're, what are you doing? Cry out to your God. And then he basically reveals to them, this has all come upon you because of me. And uh, it's funny. They cry out to God. And, and, and Jonah doesn't even jump ship himself. They have to pick him up and throw him off the ship. Then it actually says that they, they I, I don't remember exactly what it says, but it says the men on the boat, that they actually turn and they, they start worshiping Yahweh, which is insane. Like imagine God bringing good out of that circumstance. But what happens? Jonah goes to Nineveh. He says, 40 days and you're going to burn. And they all repent. He goes up on the hill to cry. He says he prayed to the Lord, please, Lord. Isn't this what I said while I was in my, still in my own country? That's why I fled toward Tarshish in the first place. I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love, and one who relents from sending disaster. <laughs> the fickleness, right? Our pride. How do, do we find God's love unjust? I mean, if that was all that was said of God, if that was all that God did was just love and forgive, well, consider the second, um, the preceding verse in Exodus 34, after the Lord passed in front of Moses. It says, um, the Lord, compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in faithful and love and truth, says, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And you're like, wow. So is it just forgiveness and well where do these things meet right you guys know where they meet they met on a hillside 2000 years ago and it was all struck down on the only perfect man who ever lived they met on the cross and it was and, and justice was meted out on our savior right it says in um Romans 3, there is no difference. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace to the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness. Because in his forbearance, God has passed over sins that were previously committed to demonstrate. This is, the, this is, this is where you got to catch it. To demonstrate at this present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. He's just. Sin must be punished, but he's also justifier in the one that the sin was laid upon, and that is Jesus. So A.W. Tozer wrote in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, he wrote, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. This love of God, right? This infinite, unfathomable love of God. 
He said, the history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion, and man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. Worship is pure or base as a, worship, as a worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. What, how do you view God? Is he your father? Do, do you view him as merci, uh, merciful and compassionate and loving? Do you view him as one you can go to and hide behind his leg? He, I mean, because the thing is in Romans 8 says that the spirit helps us in our weaknesses and makes intercessions with groans beyond words, right? When you don't know how to pray, when you're just broken and your life is, you feel like it's miserable, you can go down and lay on your face and you ought to. Your weak, pathetic prayers are effective. It's because we're weak that we pray and we go to God and the spirit works for us, makes intercession with God. It says, and he who searches the mind of the spirit knows what the will of God is because he prays according to the will of God, right? God knows the mind of the spirit and the spirit prays for us to God, right? So I, how is it that you, what is it that you entertain in your mind about? I think about God all day long and I imagine as you, you guys, my brothers and sisters in Christ being born again, having received his spirit. Right, a spirit of adoption who cries out, Abba, Father. Guys, my, oh, I love my wife. I feel bad for her. Like, I walk into the house and, like, Olivia, oh, Daddy. John's like, Dad. Kai's like, Dad. And Carissa's just like, Dad. I'm like, what? I'm just Dad. That's it, right? God made, and it's, it's this imperfect type of what our Heavenly Father is like. I heard this. Um, I heard this story. I hope it. I hope it impacts you the way it impacted me. A guy named Brant. 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 Um, hold on. Hold on. I, he has the same name as a friend of mine. I'm forgetting my friend's name now. I feel terrible. Anyway, a guy named Brant lived in Texas. He was bringing his kids to the rodeo. Had them both strapped into the back seat. He said that he had more than a more than a half a dozen stops he had to make with his wife before they got to the rodeo. He stop here, go there, stop there, stop here, go there, stop here. He gets on the highway, and then sees lights behind him. <laughs> I didn't even realize I was speeding. Right, pulls over, cop comes up, gets a ticket. Ten minutes down the road, he says about ten minutes down the road, he just hears this voice from the back. Hey, daddy. Oh, hey. Where are we going? Oh, right. We're going to the rodeo. Horsies. They got they got a lot of horsies. Oh, good. And he's thinking, why wasn't my daughter freaking out this entire time? Where are we going? What are we doing? What? And and it dawned on him, right? She's just, oh, good. I even put a smiley in my my notes. Just imagine this little girl's face lighting up. Oh, horsies, good, right? I mean. You know, we're going here, going there. I'm in this car seat, going here, going there. I'm strapped in. It's funny lights. Uh, funny man. Dad's annoyed because funny man handed him a piece of paper. Anyway, this whole time, she was preoccupied simply by enjoying being with her father. Right? The good, loving, trustworthy character of her dad gave her peace so much that the uncertainty of not knowing what they were doing didn't plague her. But when she asked, where are we going? Daddy told her. Guys, daddy, not daddy, 
your heavenly father, daddy feels a little irreverent for me, but your heavenly father has told you where you're going. And how is it that you view your heavenly father, right? How is it that you look at this beautiful tapestry that is life? Do you trust the author? Do you, do you trust that you, that he knows where you're headed and that you're in his hands says the end of your faith, verse eight, Actually, maybe that's verse nine. Getting used to this paper thing. Um, sorry guys. I just want to know what verse that is. Receiving the end of your faith, verse nine, the end of your faith. It is the salvation of your soul. Have you read Revelation 21 and 22, the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven? And this marriage supper of the Lamb, I know that's not Revelation 21 and 22, but this creation where this perfect, infinite God is going to wipe away every tear, these, these traumas that you go through, that you that seriously you deal with, the things you deal with, that God's going to wipe it away. So here's the thing. God, God is a maximally great being. And after humbling himself clothing himself with humanity who is obedient to the point of death even the death of the cross for your good and for his glory he is trustworthy we ought to entertain our thoughts with thoughts of god how great how high he is that the end of your faith is the salvation of your souls what are you trusting in let's pray father thank you for this passage Lord, thank you. Thank you for the work of Christ. Lord, I pray that we would only focus our gaze upon you, Lord, that the things that we deal with on a day-to-day -day basis, we would deal with with integrity and the spirit to glorify you so that when we step into your presence, we would hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. That is what we long to hear. What greater words than that? Lord, we, uh, we just pray that we bless you tonight, tomorrow, all the days of our life, Lord, in this fellowship amongst our brothers and sisters in the world as a testimony. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.